This was our text last week. It will be again today. Beginning at verse 10. Psalm 104, verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. If we would have a secondary text, something perhaps if you're taking notes you might want to write down, it's Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Last week we began a new series, um, a theology of food and of eating. And just by way of review, um, we looked at three critical issues to sort of get us started on this, on this journey. The first is theology, that we have a theology of food. Theology seems to be something that divides people rather than unites. And then oftentimes it seems that theology is more a question of information or of knowledge rather than practice. I hope that as we began the series last week and as we continue, um, that we see that theology is important and that it should inform our behavior. It should affect the way that we act. The second thing we looked at is creation. And as I mentioned, Norman Wiersma's book in the first chapter, his first sentence is, why did God create a world in which every living creature must eat? In reality, food is about relationships, relationships that join us to the earth, that join us to our fellow creatures, our loved ones, our guests, and ultimately join us to God. I don't know that we see this, and why don't we? In part, it is because of how we view creation, what most people, I would say, in our society call nature or even Mother Nature. It seems that whatever view people take of nature, uh, t- it has a, a tremendous uh, significance for how they think about food and how we relate to nature as that which provides our food. A theological account of nature refers to it as creation. And so when we speak of creation, we must, I think, by definition, have reference to God as the source, the sustenance and the end of all things. The world is not some random accident, nor is it a valueless thing waiting for us to somehow say, oh, you have value because I say you have value. Creation is a concrete expression of God's love. So theologically understood Food is not reducible to material stuff or fuel. Food has true theological significance. It is the provision and nurture of God made pleasing and delectable. It is a daily reminder that life and death come to us as gifts. The doctrine of creation has wide-ranging implications, as we saw last week. How we think of ourselves, how we think of the world and how we think of our place and our responsibilities in it. The third thing we looked at last week is Trinity. Creation, as told in a Christian way from Scripture, is bound up in the Trinitarian life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If God created the world, 
then God also communicated his own love, his own Trinitarian love, as the basis and the goal of creation and created life. The same love that existed between the Father, Son, and Spirit before anything came into being is the same love that creates, sustains, and redeems the world. Now, part of this we have to work through is how do we think of Trinity? If we think of it of three beings as sort of isolated and having different functions, then I think it will affect the, we, the way that we view reality. And I think in many ways we will end up having a very utilitarian, that everything has a job, everything has a function, and that we think in terms of function rather than relationship. I think what we need to see is that the Trinity, which certainly is beyond our ability to comprehend, is three persons who coexist with each other in radical equality. That is to say, for us, it's easier if we think of there's the Father and there's the Son and there's the Spirit. But I think when we look at Scripture, they have a mutual interrelationship. It isn't that the Father begins and ends here and the Son begins and ends here, but there is instead a mutual blending together, a mutual indwelling which is the nature of reality, if we would think about it. Nothing stands apart from everything else. Everything is connected. There is this mutual interdependence that marks God's creation, which is a reflection of who God is. I think our experience of eating confirms this, and I hope that as we go along in this series that we'll come back to this and, and deal with this more. What I hope to do today is to add three more pieces to the mosaic as we develop a theology of food and eating. But before we do that, I want to sort of digress a bit, but it's certainly pertinent to what we're looking at. And that's, let's talk about bread. Let's consider the matter of bread. You may have noticed in our passage today, our text in Psalm 104, that in contrast to what God gives to the animals and to the birds, what he gives to humanity is wine, oil, and bread. Think for a moment. What is different about these three things versus what God gives to the rest of creation? It is this. They do not spring from the earth in this form. Wine doesn't come from the earth. Oil doesn't come from the earth. Bread doesn't. These are things that require various processes and efforts to reach these forms. Let's look at bread specifically. By the way, bread is central in Scripture. It appears time and time again. It's Melchizedek who brings wine and bread out to Abraham. We have the unleavened bread of Passover. We have the temptation in the wilderness to turn stones into bread. In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And then words that we heard a few moments ago, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Unlike most fruits, vegetables, and even meat, the preparation of bread requires or presupposes a radical transformation. To get bread, you must first transform grain into flour. And then you must change flour into dough. And then you must bake the dough at the right temperature for the right length of time in order to get something that's worth eating. 
But if you back up even more, we would say to get the grain, you must cultivate, you must harvest, and you must store the grain. Um, in fact, if you look at verse number 14 in our text, um, plants for man to cultivate and bring forth food from the earth. To create bread requires a particular type of culture, a kind of culture that doesn't simply gather food. Uh, we're not hunters and gatherers as such, but we are people who, by God's grace, there are those among us who can imaginatively transform the gifts of creation into something that can be shared with others. It's interesting to note, and those of you who are into language, something worth pursuing, how bread shows up in various words. For example, one example is companion. Companion actually comes from two Latin words, cum, which means with, and panis, which is bread. So companion is someone you eat bread with. It is someone that you share your bread with. More than providing nourishment, bread communicates home, hospitality, fellowship. It is the sharing of our life together. If you wish, the story of bread actually communicates four different narratives or four different stories. First of all, the narrative of the natural processes that bring forth the ingredients, because it's not only wheat that is used for bread, but other things as well. But we have the story of how these things are planted and then they grow and then they are harvested and they are prepared and then we have the flour. There is the narrative of agriculture, the domestication of plants, experimentation with grains, the development of grain economies. Then there is the moral narrative about the transformation of humanity, how we are changed by bread that we develop relationships with each other in breaking bread together. And then finally, there is the theological narrative in which we read that Jesus is the bread of life. So when we look at a piece of bread, or take a bite out of a piece of bread, um, we should go beyond mere food and eating to the four stories, at least, that are involved, the material, the biological, the social, and the divine sources that are involved in every bite. Wiersma writes in his book, bread can be, be eaten in ways that honor the sources and memberships of life. It can also be eaten in ways that do not. He goes on to write, how we make bread, how we share and distribute it, are of profound moral and spiritual significance because every loaf of bread presupposes decisions that have been made about how to configure the social and ecological relationships that made bread possible. We need to ask ourselves, is bread a commodity or is it God's gift to us? I hope that in this series we will come back to this. But how do we view eating? Is it simply shoveling nutrients into our bodies? Or is it a spiritual exercise? And what would it mean to eat with deep appreciation, with a sense of food's theological significance? Inviting, uh, eating invites us to commune with others. But it also invites us to discover and commune with the source and sustainer of life. It isn't simply, it is great to eat with other people, but there needs to be an awareness 
that this comes from God and there is to be communion with the one who provided it. Now, if we think of food as a spiritual exercise or eating as a spiritual exercise, it doesn't mean necessarily that somehow food becomes spiritualized. Um, Food does not become somehow ethereal or sort of none or less material. Um, Rather, we should have a theological approach to eating that enables us to see eating and food within a particular context. A context of relationships that are between us and other people, us and the ground, but also between us and the Creator. Again, to quote Wiersbe, to approach food with a concern for its theological depth is to acknowledge that food is precious because it has its source in God. Today, I want to add three more pieces to the puzzle, but to do so, we must do it in context. Consider this. If you go to Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, that when God created man, he put him in a garden. It's no accident that God did this. It is in the garden that people first taste and fully appreciate and sense the grace of God. Here they learn, as should we, made in the image of God, that we are the recipients of a world of gifts. We are creatures made by and dependent upon the Creator. It is in Eden that Adam and Eve discover what it means to be marked by hunger. And we talked about this last week. Adam and Eve got hungry before sin. Uh, to be hungry is not a sin. It shows that we need, we need to be nourished. That is our nature. It is a place of blessing, a place of ignorance, also a place of interdependence. It is there that they are given the calling to work the garden and to take care of it. Wherever we happen to live, our joy and health, our skill and understanding must be shaped in some measure by the responsibilities and possibilities of a garden home. Not literally, but understanding where we came from at the beginning. Gardens are important because in them we see in an especially clear way the complex range of relationships that join us to creation, but to the creator as well. One could say, and Wiersbe does in his book, that gardens are microcosms of the world in which human life and the forces of productive life meet. They are the primary and practical site through which a culture takes shape. Um, I was going to mention, it's not in my notes, but a book came out last year uh, entitled The Founding Gardeners. And it's about the men like John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, what we would call the founding fathers of this country. These guys were just fanatical about gardening. And the author writes how much this informed their view of liberty and what it meant to be human and what this country should be. Um, Gardening, I think, has much to teach us. But with that in mind, that God made Adam and Eve and put them in a garden, there they were to learn I'm going to add three more pieces to the mosaic. Place, embodiment, and dwelling. Let's begin with place. An ancient philosopher said, to be is to be in place. And what he succinctly put is the truth that place is required for anything to exist. 
We must be in a place if we are to have existence. To talk meaningfully about something, we must be able to put it within a context of place. It's impossible to be without place because it is in terms of place that everything begins to take shape. We may not fully understand the places we live in. We may not even like the places that we live in. We may feel displaced or even lost. But we cannot ever be without a place and be well. To be alive is to be in a place. A place that literally and figuratively feeds us. This explains, by the way, two phenomena. Those who are refugees and those who are exiles. How that these conditions are seen as almost monstrous. These are horrible conditions. To be a refugee, that is to have escaped or to run from one's place, one's home place, and now be away from that. Or an exile who is pushed out of one's place. Always reminded of Socrates, uh, was given a choice uh, when he was found guilty of corrupting the youth, that he could either leave Athens in exile or drink hemlock and die. So exile or death. And you know, he chose death. He would rather die than leave the place that he was from. When we leave a place, now I think much of this is strange for us because we're such a mobile society that some of this seems very strange. But when people leave a place as a refugee or as an exile, they lose a connection. The connection between people and land is lost. This, I think, explains in part what we find in Jeremiah chapter 29. You may remember when we went through Jeremiah, how that Jeremiah is instructed by God to write a letter to the exiles. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Interesting, God said, I sent you into exile. Okay, You no longer live in Jerusalem, you now live in Babylon. And what does God say? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I think... The Jews were tempted to say, we're going to live out of our suitcases because there were prophets telling them, don't unpack because we're going back pretty soon. And God says, no, you're not. You are exiles, but this is the place that I have carried you to. This is where you are to grow roots. A place is both limiting as well as a condition for the possibility of life. We may not like the idea of being limited, that's part of the arrogance of being human. We, th- we think that there are a few limits on us. Um, but a limit, I think, is good. It is part of what it means to be human, to be limited to a particular place. A human life is unimaginable, one might even say impossible, without particular relations to the things and persons around us. Which means, ultimately, who we are as creatures is based on relations and relationships. Not possessions, not uh, 
the things we have, but our relationships. There are those that argue that the way the world came into being, we were all individuals. And now, if we can, it would be optimal if somehow we could now get together and we could make relationships. The biblical story of the garden, by extension gardening itself, starts with a radically different assumption. Man, Adam, is what he is because of his relationship to the earth, Adama. Hebrew, Adam, man, Adama, the soil, where he comes from. And it is God who creates man from soil, from the earth. And so there is a relationship. It isn't as though somehow man is, is separate from everything else. There is a deep connection. Creatures cannot and were never meant to live in isolation or separation from one another. Kinship and harmony, mutuality and intimacy are to be the rule of healthy life together. The garden shows this to be the case. We should not be surprised by it, even though we may be. The Trinitarian communal life is the basis for the creation of the world. So that is place. That's another piece of the mosaic. Secondly, let's look at embodiment. The central place of embodiment is understood when we, or of place is understood when we speak of embodiment, the reality that we have bodies. As one writer put it, my body continually takes me into place. It is at once agent and vehicle, articulator and witness of being in place. This is not to say that our bodies are simply contained by place, that somehow our bodies are constricting, are being constricted by place. Rather, it is the place that we are, where we live, is continually interacting with us and we with it through our senses. Think of food and smell, sound, touch, and image. When we grow food or eat the food of a particular area, it allows us to inhabit, in a sense, that place. And I think we do so with more understanding and sympathy than we would normally. To the extent that people are displaced, either as refugees or exiles, or live in a mobile society, and they are strangers to a place, they are unable to appreciate appropriately or appreciatively the breadth and depth of relations that make up a place, that we are always strangers. One of the defining moments, or one of the defining acts, aspects or features of post-modernity is the extent to which people live in what has been now called non-places. Non-places. Marc Auger, it's a French anthropologist, in 1995, wrote a book, Non-Places, an Introduction to an Anthropology of Supermodernity. And he writes this, If a place can be defined as relational, historical, and concerned with identity, then a space which cannot be defined as relational or historical or concerned with identity will be a non-place. These are places that we pass through, places of transience, that don't hold enough significance to be regarded as a place. He gives some examples, such as a hotel room, 
an airport, or a supermarket. Such places prevent anything like a deep relationship or receptive openness to others. So impersonal shopping, constant mobility, uniform housing, electronic screens, as in sitting in front of, cash machines. Our affections wither in the face of anonymity. We lose the ability to respond to the world, to be responsive to the world. Auger puts it this way, the passenger through non-places retrieves his identity at, only at customs, at the toll booth, at the checkout counter. Meanwhile, he obeys the same code as others, receives the same messages, responds to the same entreaties. The space of non-places creates neither singular identity or relations, only solitude and similitude. As one book that came out last year, the year before, it's entitled Alone Together as we are in non-places. The results are that people become disoriented. And it's not merely that you're lost, you know, at the location level, where am I? But I think people lose a sense of who should I be and what should I do? Because we have no sense of place and no sense that I am here in my body in this place and I'm interacting with it through my body, we lose and we become disoriented. One writer noted of the Navajo language, in our tongue, there is no word for relocation. To move away is to, dis- is to disappear and never be seen again. This leads to the third piece of the mosaic today, and that is dwelling. To dwell means to make a home for oneself in a place. And I think it's more fundamental than building or buying a house. It is the attitude, the orientation, the structure. Somehow it informs the structure. It isn't simply a place where we live. It is an expression of dwelling. It is an expression of our responsiveness to others. But we live in a world, in a culture, in which we find the steady, even systemic destruction of the many ecosystems that nurture and feed us. Agriculture has become an industrial force that erodes, exhausts, and poisons our world. Agriculture is no longer the art that tunes human culture, that tunes us to the needs and potential of soil, plant, and animal, and therefore promotes our health and that promotes the, the health of the land. One writer put it this way, Western civilization has decided to promote institutions of dislocation in every dimension of social and cultural existence. Therefore, people no longer dwell. They're always on the move. With this in mind, let's return to the the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are told about the origin of the world. But much more than that, we are told about the character of the world. See, if you go back and look at the origin myths, the creation myths of various cultures, it isn't simply how they came to be. It explains why they are the way they are at the given time in the contemporary world. Creation stories paint a moral and spiritual geography. It is a map within which we live. 
And in contrast to what we find in the ancient world, in which the world is seen as coming out of violence, the Genesis account tells us of a world that is founded on and ends in peace. God sees it and it is good. And at the end he sees it and it is very good. People thus learn what life is. It is a gift from God, a wonderful thing. And it is to be lived as an expression of worship. It isn't the result of some cataclysm, of some great violent event. It is the, it is the result of God's loving creating. Here we are to discover the character and meaning of the places in which we live as well as to receive direction on how we are to live in these places. In his book, Wiersbe argues that most people, and I think we would include ourselves in this group, when they read Genesis chapter 1, that it is tempting to conclude that the apex, the climax of creation in creation week is man. That man is the most important creature among all of God's creations. He is the one made in the image of God he is the one for whom the other creatures and the rest of creation exist. When people read Genesis 1.28, they interpret it as meaning people can do with creation almost anything that they want. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But what if? What if... Adam is not the apex. He is not the climax of creation. What if, in fact, it is the Sabbath day? And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God's rest had nothing to do with fatigue, as though God would somehow become tired of creating, or that he would, in fact, stop creating, because we know God is still at work today. Rather, it has to do with the intense joy and peace, the supreme delight and contentment that followed from God's life-giving work. We tend to think of Sabbath, and certainly as finite creatures, as a time to escape the harried pace of life. But contrary to our restlessness, the constant frantic searching and striving for a different place or a better community, we read about God, that God rests because there is no other place God would rather be than in his creation. God rests because the place where God is is the place of God's love and concern and work. There's simply no other place worth going to. Sabbath is not a reprieve from life. Rather, it points to the end, the purpose of life. And it seeks to put an end to the restlessness that prevents our deep engagement with life. This view of Sabbath gives us a strikingly different view of what our orientation to place should be. Theologically speaking, to be properly in a place is to be fully present and receptive to the gifts God gives you. Such an orientation teaches us to be attentive and faithful to the goodness and grace that are concrete expressions of God's love. I said something last week that stuck with me, that when we eat, we taste 
God's love. We get to taste the delectable nature of God's love. It isn't some abstract, ethereal concept, some theological idea that has no connection with real life. Sabbath teaches us to enjoy and to savor the places we are in as God's delight made delectable. This is where God has put us. And when we are faced with God's care and creation's goodness, we should be overcome with the desire to celebrate and worship. Sunday should be that day of worship because of what we've been through in the previous week. We are so filled with joy and peace at what God has done. God's love is not only seen in place, but in embodiment. God puts Adam in a garden, yes. But more than that, let me read to you from Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. It is by tasting the gifts of God, by fully sensing with his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue, that Adam learns what it means to live rightly in the garden that God has prepared. And so Adam's calling to work in the garden, to take care of the garden, is linked, is the link between place, Eden, embodiment, he is, he has a body, and dwelling, that is where he will live. And there he is to dwell and to fulfill his calling. I do promise you that we will eventually flesh this all out and have a theology of food and eating, but some of this seems so necessary to give us a foundation that we can then delve into the area of eating and food. I would close by reminding you of what we read in John's Gospel, the first chapter. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It is in Jesus Christ, in the Incarnation, that we hear and we see a place of embodiment and of dwelling. Jesus didn't just sort of shoot down from heaven for a little bit, uh, some spiritual type of body. He came through the Virgin Mary, was born and he grew up and he lived here. He made his dwelling among us. We've seen in the Coburn study that in Acts, Jesus, who is limited by his physicality, has ascended to the Father and now by his spirit is no longer limited. The spirit of Jesus is able to infuse all of his people. But he still has a body and we have bodies and we have place and we are to dwell where God has put us. I think we need to understand these things so that we will have a proper theology of food and of eating. Let's pray together. Father, we begin by thanking you that you made us. You made this world. You've put us where we are. Though at times we experience dislocation and in our society of mobility I think have a greater restlessness than ever. 
Thank you for your word in which we are reminded that you have put us in places, as Paul tells the Athenians, and you have given us days and years in which to live. You've given us bodies, and here we are to dwell. We are to accept what you have given us as gifts of grace, and that includes food. We are connected to the earth. In so many ways, we come from the earth. But it is in eating that there is a mutuality of indwelling. And we are to remind, be reminded that you are the one who makes it all possible. I thank you for this time that we could gather today to worship you. Again, we pray for our brother Dan as he travels. You would watch over him, open doors for him, make his time productive and profitable. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.